I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. I'm Jack Caporal, filling in for Andrew Schwartz. On this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk about the future of internet services in Hong Kong, how they're adapting to the new national security law. And we'll take a look at the final field of candidates for the top job at the WTO. Plus, we'll take our first deep dive into Joe Biden's new supply chain resiliency proposal. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. We're back with a brand new episode of The Trade Guys. I'm Jack Apperl filling in for Andrew Schwartz, who's enjoying a lovely beachside vacation. But in in his absence, there's still a lot of news to go over. I wanted to start with a story that's been on the front page for the past couple of weeks, which is Hong Kong. So I think the last time we spoke, Hong Kong and China was gearing up to implement the national security law which raised a lot of fears about Hong Kong's independence from China. And there are a lot of potential trade effects, changes to Hong Kong's trade status that could occur because the United States has determined that Hong Kong is no longer independent from China. But one uh, issue that's not being driven necessarily by U.S. policy, but is playing out on the ground is how internet companies are dealing with the change in Hong Kong's status and China's new national security law and essentially China's new ability to request user data from platforms operating in in Hong Kong. And this has put tech companies between a rock and a hard place because if they don't comply with the request from the Hong Kong government for user data, or if they don't comply with the request to censor certain posts, they could be subject to legal action. But on the other hand, they don't want to be seen as complying with uh, heavy-handed requests from essentially the Chinese government at this point. Uh, And so this has implications for companies like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram that operate in Hong Kong but don't operate in mainland China, but now are are essentially under mainland Chinese jurisdiction. So what do you guys think? What are we seeing the internet fracturing or bifurcating? What are the business implications here? Well, I think it's definitely fracturing. Um, First of all, you know, it, it would be nice if the world stopped when Andrew went to the beach and we could all take a vacation. Unfortunately, these things keep happening. And you've picked a timely one because I gather just today or yesterday, both uh, Google, Facebook and Twitter all announced that they're not going to comply with Hong Kong government requests for data and information, just as they've not complied in China. The consequence of that is that they'll probably be shut down uh, in Hong Kong, which is one more sign that essentially the the mainland government has abrogated the agreement with, with the UK to respect uh, Hong Kong's autonomy. And uh, they're putting everybody under the same uh, difficult conditions that they put the, they put the mainland. I thought the, the, the interesting addition to that was the announcement from TikTok that they're going to remove TikTok from Hong Kong, not for the reason you might think. It's because ByteDance, which is the parent, only operates TikTok outside of China. And they've been operating it in Hong Kong because Hong Kong was outside of China. And now they're shutting it down in Hong Kong because they regard it as no longer outside China, which is about as clear an indication as you can get that Chinese entities, in this case, uh, ByteDance, are, are, you know, seeing the writing on the wall 
and are saying, you know, this entity is now really going to be treated pretty much like the mainland. If you saw the Washington Post today, the security forces moved in. They've taken over a hotel, a fancy hotel uh, with a pool. And I think, uh, you know, the, the transformation is going to be uh, significant uh, and it's going to be uh, very difficult for the Hong Kong people. Yeah, I think we've certainly come to an end of the fiction of one country, two systems. You know, Hong Kong is, for all intents and purposes, now part of China. And uh, I think certainly American business, but it sounds like world business will regard it as such. And that will have some consequences. That's uh, that's long-term bad for Hong Kong. I mean, look, Hong Kong, with its special status and really that underlying set of British common law rules and honest civil service, had a very simple promise that it made to the world. And the promise was, you're safe and your money's safe. Well, with the new security law, you're not safe anymore. And nobody can really say that with a straight face. And it's only a matter of time till once you're not safe, that your money's not safe. So this changes the equation completely for Hong Kong. It's to no one's surprise. I mean, China is who we thought they were, okay, as uh, Dennis Green would have said. And and, and that's, that's the way it is. As somebody smarter than us said on the podcast a while back, you know, capital is not courageous. Or maybe it was Scott that said that. But anyway, he was right. Capital is not courageous. And if you're not safe, not very difficult to conclude that your money's not safe either. And I think you're going to see people and money leaving, which is really the end of Hong Kong as a financial center. Yeah, the last time we talked about this, we talked about how difficult it was to find things for the United States to do that would not hurt the people of Hong Kong, but hurt China. And uh, we were racking our brains on that because most of the actions that the U.S. can take, particularly with things like export controls, are both the right thing to do uh, and the, and they should be we should proceed with them, but they will inevitably harm the people of Hong Kong. The best solution so far, frankly, was Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's approach was if the security law goes through, any Hong Kong citizen, passport holder can emigrate with special status to the United Kingdom. And uh, I, th I thought that was a brilliant stroke on his part and will help Britain and, uh, and hurt the mainland and help some people in Hong Kong. Well, it's spreading, too. I saw the Australians announced yesterday that they've canceled their extradition treaty with Hong Kong uh, and are taking steps to allow, the, I guess, the 10,000 Hong Kong students that are studying in Australia to stay there if they want to stay there. The Chinese are not happy about that. Uh, this may end up being one of the main steps that other countries take. On the internet issue, this isn't a new issue when it comes to Western companies trying to operate in China, right? So Facebook has had problems. Microsoft came under a lot of scrutiny years ago when they were developing a platform for China that folks feared would essentially cater to party communism. You know, if you're an internet company, do you think the strategy is to just essentially withdraw from Hong Kong and you know you see the writing on the wall and you just understand that your platform isn't going to be usable in that city for the foreseeable future? Or do you try and create a separate platform or program that's specifically for the Chinese market? And I guess part of a second part of that question or consideration is, do you think this is the first step in you know, China's internet model essentially spreading to other parts of the world? And if so, should companies wake up to that and start designing essentially two different platforms, one for the, for the Western internet and one for the Chinese model internet? Well, it seems to me the decision on Hong Kong is pretty straightforward. You basically consider Hong Kong China. So whatever your business practices are in China, that immediately applies to Hong Kong. And you don't look back because that's the situation on the ground. 
in terms of the two systems in the future, hard to say. I think that basically the Chinese have been decoupling their internet from the world's internet for a long time. They built the firewall. Uh, they're maintaining it zealously. This particular regime has been very aggressive in trying to prevent Chinese uh, citizens from accessing any uh, content that uh, the government regards as, as unacceptable. And I think that uh, Western internet providers and platforms are, are realizing that, uh, sadly, you know, that we're moving to two separate systems. Mm-hmm. You know, efforts to try to bridge that gap have not been accommodated by the Chinese government. Uh, and I think we're just going to see more and more of a separation with two separate systems. Uh, that's not good news, but that seems to be what we're getting. Well, I'm sure more from Hong Kong will come as the situation continues to develop. It's developing pretty quickly. I want to change gears, go from Hong Kong to Geneva. The World Trade Organization, they need to replace their director general. It's also something we spoke about the, the, on the last podcast. And the window for nominations closed yesterday. There are eight potential candidates for the top job at the World Trade Organization. They are candidates from essentially all over the world, I guess it's fair to say. What do you guys make of the field? Well, I think um, we had a spate of candidate inflation over the last couple of days when three more joined the fray. Even though there are eight, I think of the eight, there's really only five that have legs. I mean, they're all competent, but I expect that the EU will block the British candidate who was a, a, an avid Brexiteer. I wouldn't be surprised if, the, if Japan blocks the Korean candidate. And I think there will be a, a number of countries that will block the Saudi candidate because they are still remembering the Khashoggi murder. So that leaves five. I think the conventional wisdom from the beginning has been that if, if you could find a, uh, a competent minister-level uh, woman from an African country, they would have an advantage because there's never been an African uh, leader and there's never been a woman. And unfortunately, the situation just got complicated because they found two ministerial-level competent African women instead of one. And that creates a challenge. Had there been one, I think it would have been uh, a runaway for that candidate. But now that there are two, and Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela, former finance minister of uh, Nigeria, and Amina Mohammed, uh, former trade minister and currently uh, culture and sports minister of Kenya, that creates a complicated dynamic. The African Union had intended to endorse a candidate, and there's a third one from Africa, the Egyptian uh, Hamid Mamdou, not a woman, but uh, an African. They had intended to endorse someone, and I think their job got more difficult. And I think, you know, frankly, with two competent candidates with equivalent backgrounds and a lot of support, we now face the possibility they'll end up canceling each other out, which kind of opens the door for one of the others, uh, including the Mexican candidate. And the others are all competent, but they have not been ministers, with the exception of the, uh, the Moldovan, who's been his country's foreign minister. He has not made as big an impression yet on some of the others, but we'll see. Next week is the kickoff of the vetting process, if you will, in the sense that the candidates will meet both virtually and, and in person Uh, in Geneva with WTO uh, ambassadors, and each will have an hour to to speak, and then there will be additional time for questions. And that will be the beginning of a winnowing process, and we'll see how many survive. Well, I I think you've handicapped it pretty well. The first point I'd make is, I'm amazed that there are eight serious people who want this job, because 
it's a very difficult, very, it's a tough job. And we've talked before about the difficulties of, a, of an organization that's, from an organization a design standpoint, it's a table. Every member is equal. You sit around the table and negotiate and agree. And uh, the selection process reflects that. There will be a winnowing. It's interesting. Uh, I personally uh, am pleased that Jesus Ciade of Mexico has entered. He, for me, represents sort of the institutionalist of the field because he was a GATT ambassador. He was a deputy director general of the old GATT. So he reflects a lot of institutional knowledge and respect, which may be to his advantage. I do agree with Bill's point that if they could find an African woman that they could agree on, that'd be important for the organization. I think they'd like to have a woman and perhaps African representation as well. Both both of those are boxes that haven't been checked. But it's such an odd process. And as, as Bill pointed out in his beginning of his statement, you can easily be excluded by a single country who objects to you. Take us behind the scenes on how this actually works and how it's played in the past, because the way that you guys have described it with is Hazy Seattle considered a North American candidate or a Latin American candidate? Would Japan block the Korean candidate? Are people still upset at the with the Saudis over the Khashoggi? You're describing it more in political terms or geopolitical terms than you are in terms of expertise and who is the most qualified based on their background to lead the organization. So is this really just a geopolitical battle more than anything else? I think it depends a little bit on who ends up making the decisions. Countries like the United States and China and India that are deeply involved in WTO activities, these are decisions that are made in capitals because the the government cares about the outcome. There's a lot of countries that are not that active. They're WTO members, but they're not always active. Their ambassador is usually ambassador to other UN organizations uh, in Geneva and is occupied with other things. And there's a tendency in, in, in some capitals simply to follow the advice of their ambassador, whoever it is. The ambassadors, I think, tend to look for um, WTO experience, WTO credentials. Uh, they would look for a more institutionalist view. I think capitals probably place more emphasis on um, the three technically irrelevant categories of uh, gender, geography, and status. And uh, that's led to, you know, the speculation about this sort of thing. It's not separate. It's, it's not like you're going to have, you know, a bunch of uh, incompetent women candidates that are chosen because they're women. The three female candidates tend to be, they're all former or current ministers, and they are all highly competent. You know, you're not sacrificing anything. And if you're going to choose a woman in this case, in fact, they have, most of them are of higher status in terms of their careers than, than uh, most of the male candidates. So we'll see how it, it develops. The process is complicated. I talked to someone who did it the last time, and what happens is there's, there's a troika of the chairs of the three big committees, the, the Trade Policy Review Committee, the General Counsel, and the Dispute Settlement Committee, and that's led by the chair of the General Counsel, who's David Walker of New Zealand. And the three of them, go out and they literally interview all the WTO members. And there's 164 of them, so that's a lot of interviews. The person who did this, that I talked to, did this in 2013, which is the last time there was a, a contest. I think he said they had more than 470 interviews throughout this process. And the interviews are called confessionals. They're confidential. And the ambassadors sort of hint at who they want. And it's regarded as bad form to say who you don't want. Vetoes are regarded as, as bad form at this stage. So you say, well, we would really like to have so-and-so be the director general. And, and usually you start out with 
defending the candidate from your region. And then the Troika probes a little bit and says, well, you know, if that doesn't work out, who else would be acceptable? And then you get a smaller list. And what happens after the first round of these interviews is the Troika announces of the eight, we think in this case, probably here are the three or four that are most likely to achieve consensus. And basically, they throw the others under the bus. Yeah, it's a single elimination tournament in, uh, in sports terms. <laughs> and then the last time there were nine, in the first round, they ended up with five as where consensus was possible. Uh, then they did the whole thing again with a second round. And at, uh, the last time ended up with two. And then they did it again. So they had basically three rounds of winnowing and in the end decided that there was one candidate, Roberto Azevedo, who was most likely to achieve consensus. And then there was a meeting and everybody voted for Roberto. So they're going to go through that again in a truncated way. Normally, this is supposed to take nine months. Uh, and now they've got effectively now six weeks. So we'll see what happens. They've got a public process next week. And then they'll start winnowing, I would not be surprised to see just two rounds, that they'll reduce the eight to three or four. Three. Mm -hmm. uh, and then do it again and hopefully get it down to one. Uh, but I think the test will be what I said before. You know, there are two very competent African women. And, you know, if they eliminate one in the first round, uh, then I think you can reasonably predict the outcome. If they keep them both in, then it's going to be complicated, and the African nations are going to have to make some tough decisions about who they're going to support, because a lot of people will be looking to them for essentially guidance, because the African, the other African nations know these two the best. Uh, they've been around a long time, uh, and Gozi was finance minister in, in the early part of the 2000s. Amina was a uh, trade minister in the 2010-2015 period. They're veterans, and the African countries know them, and what they think about them will, will have influence with the others, I think. If you are fortunate enough to win this contest, you become the WTO Director General, which has got to be one of the most frustrating jobs in, uh, in international organizations. It sounds like to me the selection process could make for a reality TV show or Netflix documentary of medium entertainment, depending on how nerdy you are. <laughs> Yeah, what they haven't done is put them all in one house. But imagine this as an episode of one of these real-life Big Brother kind of things. Yeah. Hidden cameras would be hilarious. It's not quite like the, the, the Bachelor or the Bachelorette, but, yes. you know, somebody does get a rose at the end. That is true. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, th the last thing I want to cover today, former Vice President Biden, he has a Democratic nominee for president. He put out a supply chain policy plan. I think this is his most detailed trade policy plan that we've seen or that has been publicly released. And it's pretty interesting to read through. I'm just going to read a paragraph. And I think you could take this paragraph out of context and believe that this is coming from the Trump administration. Part of this reads, while medical supplies and equipment are our most pressing and urgent needs, U.S. supply chain risks are not limited to these items. The U.S. needs to close supply chain vulnerabilities across a range of critical products on which the U.S. is dangerously dependent on foreign suppliers. America needs a stronger, more resilient domestic supply chain in a number of areas, including energy and grid resilience, semiconductors, key electronics and related technologies, telecommunications, infrastructure, and raw materials. I mean, again, to me, this seems like something that could come out of the, the Trump administration. And quite a lot of this plan 
is focused on supply chain resiliency, but I'd say 90% of it is about boosting domestic manufacturing to accomplish supply chain resiliency. And only maybe 10 or 15% of it is about working with allies to create a more secure international supply chain. I mean, what do you guys think of this? Is he going in the right direction? Does he have the right objectives in mind? Is this surprising to see coming from his campaign? I think he's going in not only the right direction, but probably the only direction he can. And actually, it's it's interesting because it, it tracks some things that the CSIS Commission on Affirming American Leadership is looking at right now in terms of uh, promoting uh, innovation and, and R&D uh, in the United States. I think it's noteworthy that this is a very long policy uh, proposal. This is like seven or eight pages. And Jack read one paragraph. I really re- recommend that people go out and look at the whole thing. There's a lot there. And some of it is Trumpian, but remember that, you know, the Democrats have this this dilemma on trade. They're aware that a number of the things that, that Trump has said are popular on trade. And they've spent the campaign not disagreeing with his diagnosis, but disagreeing with his prescription and saying that he's not implementing uh, his ideas correctly and he's causing more harm than, than good and he's hurting everybody. But that doesn't fundamentally mean that that they disagree with what he wants to accomplish. And that's kind of reflected in this, in this statement. And we've learned from the pandemic that we probably do need to pay more attention to uh, domestic capabilities. The danger is, uh, and I don't think that Biden does this, but the danger is, you know, we don't want to become Peter Navarro and essentially insert that everything needs to be made by the United States and that, the, you know, the best policy is autarky. But we've learned that the inaccuracy of the speech I used to give, which was that, Thanks to globalization, everything is made everywhere. And the truth is, everything isn't made everywhere. You know, because if everything were made everywhere, we wouldn't have any bottlenecks and we wouldn't have any shortages. And we do. And we need to think about how to deal with that. The dilemma, of course, is that's expensive. Uh, the next pandemic might be next year. It might be the same one. But it might not be for 20 years. And if you're going to have a program that involves, among other things, as Biden suggested, maintaining production capability even when it's not necessary. You know, there's a good argument to be made for that, but that that's expensive. And, uh, and over a long period of time, it's very expensive. So I think it, the whole thing needs, needs a closer look, but it also needs, I think, more reflection. And, and Scott and I have talked about this, more reflection on the question of what actually is critical uh, and what is not. It's easy to say that N95 masks and a variety of, of uh, PPE are, are critical. There's a whole bunch of other people that will say food is critical. Well, okay, I, that's obvious. We all eat. Is all food critical? We get our grapes in the winter from Chile. Should we be worried about that? We need to do more work, and, and Biden goes down this road a little bit when starting to define what actually, what the term critical technology actually means. I agree. Bill's got the right idea, which is people should read the plan because I was impressed with, the, with how complete it was. It's really thought through, and a lot of campaign proposals aren't. This one had some thought behind it, which I appreciate. It was serious at that, and uh, it included things like tax incentives for, for reshoring production, things like that, which I, I was surprised to see in a in a Democrat plan. But it was lot, lots of things were there, and and there was a recognition because these things are expensive. Uh, you know, building resilience in a supply chain doesn't come for free. There was an acknowledgement, at least, of the costs and, and of the government's role in those costs, and whether it's in stockpiling or, or some other form. So I think the, the fact that it's eight or nine pages long, I didn't print it out, but it's somewhere in that range, is, 
is it shows real thinking. Uh, now, a couple of things. One is that I think that by the time January rolls around, other matters will be pressing. We had a panic. We had some actual shortages, but that period is over. Okay, we're now exporting ventilators, basically giving them away to anybody who wants them. And thanks to there were fast action by a lot of medical device producers and a lot of other firms in different businesses. No patient ever needed a ventilator in the United States and couldn't get one. So there's some good things that have happened, but once the shortages subside and the stockpiles are rebuilt, which is going to happen, I think, in a matter of weeks or months, just because hospitals get back to a steady state in their ordering patterns, this won't look like a, the, the same problem in January that it looked like two months ago. So that, that was the first caveat. Second is that the proposal uh, talks about allies a lot. And when you talk about national security and allies, that, that phrase has meaning. And uh, I think they'd have been better served by talking about trusted sources or trusted suppliers, uh, because I think ultimately that's where the definition is. And particularly for medical products where you'll, you'll have regulatory oversight and you'll have a, a basis for criteria-based decision-making on supplier reliability. The last thing I'll say is all this is very idiosyncratic and complicated. It'll be hard if they really do get into it, because as, as I've, the point I've made on the, this program a number of times is that you've got to get to the firm level to actually have an impact on supply chain resilience. In other words, if a firm has a single supplier somewhere in their supply chain, it really doesn't matter where that single supplier is, they've got vulnerability. And getting more than one is not free, as Bill pointed out, but it's a, those are firm level decisions. They're not category or sector level decisions. And so they'll be hard to make from Washington, but uh, appreciate the effort put into the proposal. I agree with Scott, but I do think the point he made about allies and partners is, is a good one. And uh, the, the better phrase, I think, is partners or trusted partners. But it's also the fact that Biden spent so much time on that is a reminder of one of the key differences between him and Trump. Because Trump doesn't talk about allies. He doesn't talk about right. partners. He talks about what we're going to do by ourselves. And Biden is, by his very nature and his entire Senate career, uh, the man is a multilateralist. He believes in teams. He believes in working together. And that's reflected in this proposal, too. You know, even if it's working in, on behalf of the United States, it's working with others in terms of common goals as well. And I think we're going to see that in all of his position papers. Under the idea of ensuring that the U.S. has enough critical supplies and promoting manufacturing capacity, one plank of the plan would be to compensate companies where necessary for maintaining excess production capacity and inventory for designated critical products. To me, that sounds a lot like what China has done in a range of sectors like steel, aluminum, cement, and solar panels, and it's created a ton of market distortions over a number of years and has had effects throughout the global economy. I mean, do you think that Biden is advocating for the same type of thing here? And is this something that the U.S. has done in the past, compensating companies to maintain excess production capacity? First, we do it all the time in the defense business. We do maintain, you know, tool and die manufacturers and equipment manufacturers uh, who are part of the defense supply chain. But the way we've done it in this particular instance in terms of medical goods is stockpiling. And uh, DHS started stockpiling 
I, I think back in the Bush 43 administration, so which was about the time DHS was created. But, but they've had stockpiling targets for a lot of the materials. And it's not a matter of where they're made. It's a matter of when something happens, you need vastly more than the, what the normal demand would justify in terms of supply. So it's about spikes in demand, which is why, why governments stockpile. So I think there are, there are non-subsidy ways to do it. But yeah, we, we keep equipment and mothballs and have probably since uh, World War I. Yeah, I interpreted that paragraph as stockpiling, not as flooding the market with excess capacity. It's like we maintain an oil uh, reservoir as well. And I think in a market economy, it, Biden is not proposing to change this, where, where uh, capital is allocated by the market. And to the extent it's allocated by the state, it's allocated by the state in fairly small amounts. And he's talking about relatively small amounts compared to the size of the American capital market. The market's going to make these decisions. And I mean, the, the Chinese problem of excess capacity is they, you know, they flood favored sectors with money and urge them to overproduce. Uh, and then they dump it all on the global market. That's not what Biden's talking about. I think he's talking about, I think it's about stockpiling. Interesting. I'm sure that Biden will have more to say about trade, and it'll be interesting to see which direction he moves in. That's one thing you can be sure yeah. of, yes. Yeah, we, we won't be out of topics anytime soon on this program. So, <laughs> Well, we'll be back next week with a, with a brand new episode, and we'll talk then. Take care. Thank you. Take care, everybody. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to the Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, Thank you. Andrew. You've been listening to the Trade Guys a CSIS podcast.